You're listening to Alcoholics Alive, where recovered members of Alcoholics Anonymous share their experience on how they live AA as a way of life. None of our participants get paid or speak for AA. Here are your hosts, Shank and Wayne. Shank, you know, we love it when we get comments or suggestions or feedback from our listeners. We do. We actually, yes. We actually got some, I don't know what you'd call it. I guess it's a, uh, it's a, it's a cleanup or a correction mm-hmm. from our pod with uh, Debbie last week when we had um, on the big book shrapnel grouch and brainstorm. <laughs> All right. Hit me with it. So Pam hit us up on our, Instagram page. And she said, listen to this episode. I just wanted to comment on the grouch and the brainstorm conversation. I was hoping your guest was going to look up the word brainstorm, which now if you remember, she should have, cause she had a dictionary in her possession that was a hundred <laughs> years old. So she says, think, oh, that's right. That's what she said. So Debbie, we want to confirm that with you one time. <laughs> so, cause we didn't use it. I don't think we did not. So Pam continues, that would mean that word means something completely different today as it did then. And then she put a definition that she found brainstorm an intense and sudden rage. And she says, now the sentence makes perfect sense. We had to be free of anger. So, so since you told me that my research um, <laughs> has found that from the Joe and Charlie tapes, they do say that that was the definition that was used at that time. I cannot confirm nor deny that. And okay. um, I appreciate the feedback from Pam. Thank yep. you, Pam. Uh, you could be right. You could be wrong. In either case, all of us are staying sober with our own definition. Yes. The, the bottom, who's Joe and Charlie? It's a long story. <laughs> I had to. Uh, I'm more interested in Shank and Wayne. The, uh, uh, so, yeah, Pam, thanks for, uh, for sending that in. And bottom line is we have to be free of anger. Yes. Resentment and, and uh, rage and anger are probably not good for alcoholics. All right, moving on. We've got a great guest today. Um, I'm excited to have him on. Uh, he comes from, I can't say the town name, but uh, Palos Verdes, California. Got it right, yep. I think. He just gave That's me the it. thumbs up. So our guest is Jason. Jason, good to have you. What you up to today? Uh, well, I just went for a nice run along the beach, which is great. I've been training for a race and my wife was kind enough to let me do that and kind of keep an eye on the kids. And now she's giving me another hour, but she is definitely getting a nice break after this meeting. So I'm going to be on duty. Love to hear it. Yeah. Tell her we appreciate the time. Uh, Tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, okay. Well, yeah. Should I identify? Yeah. yeah. Sobriety day identify. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'm Jason. I'm an alcoholic. And, uh, my sobriety date is December 21st, 1995. Uh, my home group is the Bellflower Big Book Group. 
uh, which is a Monday night uh, speaker meeting. It's not a big book discussion, which throws a lot of people off. <laughs> and right. um, yeah, and I guess I'll just, I'll talk a little bit about um, my drinking for just a few minutes and what brought me to AA. Yeah. Um, I, uh, you know, I grew up in a good home, good family, um, kind of a mixed family, like a Brady Bunch. My parents got divorced when I was super young, but so I have like stepbrothers and, a, you know, and brothers and a sister. And, you know, there were six of us in the house growing up and I was right in the middle. And, and I always felt like I was too old to hang out with my younger siblings and not cool enough to hang out with my older siblings. And, uh, and those guys, you know, they got into drinking, um, before I did and, uh, and really kind of paved the way. I didn't really drink much with them, but, um, they were a bad example, you know? And, uh, which is what every good alcoholic needs. Yeah. Um, and, uh, in the best possible way. I mean, we were like, we were the troublemakers in the neighborhood. We were the, you know, spray paint, you know, signs and ripping off hood ornaments and stealing from the mall up the street. And, you know, we, nice. we were bad, we were bad kids. So when I started drinking, it wasn't like I was a boy scout, you know, who, you know, got into some trouble with alcohol or it wasn't like I, I lost a a football scholarship, you know, like I was like, none of those things were happening anyway. Uh, right. I was, you know, I was not like a, a keg party drinker. I was like a, you know, King Cobra underneath a bridge drinker, you know, <laughs> uh, from, from the very beginning, you know, that's where my drinking started. Yeah, I was a losery kid. I never had a lot of front friends I, you know, I was a, a punk. I listened to a lot of, you know, punk and metal and then, and, you know, my drinking was a lot of um, finding little bike paths and tot lots at one o'clock in the morning and, and meeting up with a couple of friends. And hopefully one of them was um, over 21 and able to buy alcohol for some younger kids. And, you know, and I loved it. I loved alcohol. I loved the effect produced by alcohol. I loved drinking. I loved uh, the sense of being a part of that I'd never really had before I started drinking and um, I had a great time. And within a couple of years, you know, drinking went from something that was fun that I loved to do to the only thing that I ever did or knew how to do. And um, there's a lot of drugs mixed in there as well. Just, you know, um, like basically pretty much everybody I know, <laughs> you know, um, and I had a lot of fun with all that stuff too. And the only thing that um, the drugs I did have to do with my alcoholism is it just kind of hit the accelerator and brought me to my bottom a lot quicker than maybe if I had just been drinking, although I wouldn't have any way, way of knowing. Um, so within three years, uh, I basically felt like a shell of a human being. You know, I, I was constantly riddled with guilt from the way that I was treating my family, stealing from them, running out of the house for days at a time, um, con constantly lying to family and friends and anybody that cared about me. And uh, and I asked my family to send me to a, a treatment center. And, you know, I, I didn't know anything about Alcoholics Anonymous, but I knew that people that tried to get sober went to rehab, you know, and so I, to get sober, I went to treatment and, um, I went to a 28 day program and I made it seven days 
three or four <laughs> days in, you know, um, and I didn't graduate early, <laughs> you know, three or four days in, I'm, I'm, you know, getting itchy and getting uh, anxious. And, you know, I think the overwhelming thing that happened to me was somebody talked about just leaving. And, uh, and it never occurred to me in those first several days that I could just go. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so once that got in my mind, I, I wasn't able to get it out of my head. And I just started talking to myself. And, um, and then I asked that guy, I was like, should we get out of here? And he's like, no, I've got court. And then I thought, I don't have court. <laughs> I don't have, I'm not, I'm not here for court. I'm here because I asked my family to come here. And, uh, and I mean, he, he could, you know, he, you could have just poured me a drink right there. So, uh, I started asking around and found someone to come with me and collected money from all the other kids that I was supposedly going to use to go buy cigarettes and come back to the rehab. Uh, <laughs> Oops. and, uh, right. And so, and I, you know, long story short, I, I left and, uh, and, and the whole time my heart is pounding and, and this is payphone days, you know, no cell phones, BC before cell phones. And, um, and I'm making, I'm, you know, got a stack of quarters and I'm making calls until you, you remember you had to get somebody on the phone. Then you had to find out if they knew somebody who drove and then you had to get someone to come pick you up. So it was all these steps. And the whole time my head is screaming, don't do it, man. Don't do it. You don't have to, you know, you've got seven days. I was seven days in. you've got seven days sober. And, um, you know, the easiest way I can put it is that voice was not in the driver's seat. I went out and I got loaded. And the second I did that, you know, I just started crying and feeling guilty and shameful and nothing new. This had happened a hundred times before this kind of guilt and remorse that I would suffer from. And I started telling my friends I need to go back to rehab. And they were like, no problem. You're not a lot of fun anyway. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, six hours after I broke out of that place, I'm banging on the doors, crying, begging them to let me back in. And and uh, they did not let me back in. They they sent me home. And um, my dad came and picked me up, and I got to see that look of shame and frustration and uh, that I had seen a hundred times. And just in his truck on the way back to his house, and I just said that, you know, I'm not going to do this anymore. So this is something's got to change. And it was nothing that they had not heard. My, my family had not heard, but in, in, for some reason, I just felt like I can't do it anymore. I just felt like I'm done. I am done to my bones. I was tired. I was empty. And there wasn't a single moment of enjoyment when I went back, not a second you know, normally I, I trade everything away for a half hour or an hour, but, but in those last days, there was, there was, the party was over. So anyway, I think I'm going over my five minutes, but, but that's what, that's what had to happen. I had to hit bottom, Yeah. you know, and that happened. And from that happening, all of a sudden I was introduced to AA and, and my journey mm -hmm. in sobriety was able to, to begin, but it was not, there's no way that would have happened had I not hit a real bottom, a true bottom. You've been sober ever since? 
<laughs> so that's not my sobriety date. So okay. um, I you introduced AA been, then, though. Yeah, I, I have not been intoxicated since. So in my early sobriety, and I'm glad you asked that question, and I can kind of touch on this. In my early sobriety, I had a cavalier relationship with alcohol, where I understood sobriety to be I could not get drunk. Nah. But I didn't. I didn't. I did not comprehend that that means that I can't have a, a glass of wine. By the way, that wasn't like I was coming home and, you know, going down to the cellar and getting a, a, right. a bottle of wine to have a glass. But I did date a girl uh, who was a non-alcoholic in early sobriety. I mean, I was 17. We say date very loosely, but and she she was drinking uh, an alcoholic beverage that I knew to have alcohol in it. And I, I had a sip of that, you know. And I didn't hmm. think any anything of it. I didn't think, oh my God, now, thank God that I didn't experience that phenomenon of craving in yeah. that moment. And it you wasn't know, a King was, Cobra. No, it wasn't King Cobra. It wasn't <laughs> bourbon. It was some. It was some fancy drink that I had never had. But anyway, so I wound up. Uh, I, like I said, I didn't think anything of it. There was some kind of grace in my life, and uh, and I just went about my life. And but then eventually, it occurred to me that's not cool you know and right. since i wound up changing my sobriety date um to the date that i have now okay so, yeah well we're glad you got sober we're definitely Me glad too, that yeah. you that you're Me here too. not not on that king cobra anymore that's I right did, yeah i was always a bull I, man i never had the cobra i quickly upgraded to mickey's from king nice. cobra. that was just my first <laughs> drunk was king Perfect. cobra all right all right shank what's uh what's our topic today all right, today our topic is the impeccable coat of tan. So this <laughs> is, um, I don't know, to me, maybe this was a little self-explanatory when I was first going through the big book, although I knew that I didn't relate to Bill at all when I first got sober. Okay, but our um, topic is impeccable coat of tan here is where it is in the big book it says in 1929 i contracted golf fever we went at once to the country my wife to applaud while i started out to overtake walter hagen liquor came up with me much faster than i came up behind walter i began to be jittery in the morning golf permitted drinking every day and every night it was fun to caroom around the exclusive course which had inspired such awe in me as a lad. I acquired the impeccable coat of tan one sees upon the well-to-do. The, the local banker watched me whirl fat checks in and out of his till with amused skepticism. So that is from um, page three to four, and that's in the book Alcoholics Anonymous, the fourth edition. So... Much more confusing to me personally when I first got sober was I was wondering what golf fever was. Like, I think I kind of thought that was an actual sickness. Um, <laughs> Did you really? Yeah. Until no. I read through like the rest of it, I just got stuck on, okay, he got sick. What next? What next? You know, be glad, what else you, is be glad you never caught it. True. Yeah. It does sound very expensive. So, uh, I do think kind of in this sentence, uh, you know, it tells you the impeccable coat of tan one sees upon the well-to-do. So that's all I needed to know, like whether or not it was an actual coat, 
I don't know. It was the well-to-do. So to me, I'm like, ah, rich people stuff, whatever. Um, I will tell you all that in kind of doing a little bit of research for this, um, you know, I had always thought that being pale was was associated with higher social status, and it was up until a so- certain point. Um, by 1935, the impeccable coat of tan would have been something that only the well-to-do could afford since they could go on vacation. So there you go. Being right. out in the sun, playing golf, paying money to play golf, getting that impeccable coat of tan of the well-to-do. So that was a sign of being well-to-do. It was. Um, if you will, the rich people, that rich people glow. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I used to get those spray tans and people thought I was well-to-do, but I wasn't. <laughs> used to. <laughs> I haven't had a spray tan in a while, Shank. Come on. <laughs> I might lie in the bed every once in a while, but I, uh-huh. haven't, had, I haven't been sprayed in a while. Mm. <laughs> if you say so. <laughs> Jason, what do you think about that paragraph and that topic? I think so. I love this part of the book. Um, I love this part of Bill's story because it just never happened for me. (laughs) I've really, uh, you know, so people have many varied experiences in AA, and um, there are a lot of people that start drinking and. You know, it takes over their life and they get into some trouble, but then eventually are able to sort of, you know, manage the drinking while experiencing other successes in their life. And that could be, you know, doing well in school or in sports or um, their, you know, their career. You know, they may get married and have kids and, and, and experience, you know, some real successes. It's just, that's just not my story, <laughs> yeah. you know, not a, not a single one. Um, so, I, you know, I'm not going to say that there aren't ways that I can relate to this because there are, in my case, they're in my sobriety. Um, and, you know, and it more has to do with how my ego can take credit for some of the amazing things that have happened in my life. But, but, you know, with but that's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is his drinking is going strong. And he's doing well financially and Bill is, is experiencing some success. This is when he's, you know, he's able to, you know, go out to the country and play golf and drink it, you know, it's a drinking, you know, golf permitted drinking every day, you know, like, and who does, and who doesn't love, you know, a good vacation with, with alcohol, you know? Right. And, uh, <laughs> and so I don't, I don't have that. Oh, now everything's going really well and I'm married and, you know, and, you know, I've got a car and I've got, you know, this new hobby that I love and, and, you know, it's a hobby that allows me to drink while, I mean, like nobody, nobody playing racquetball is like that, you know, it's just golf basically, (laughs) you know, or bowling. Um, (laughs) But he's, but he's experiencing success and drinking it. But I do remember when it occurred to me that drinking was something that I could do all the time, you know? And I do, I remember that period where I was like, I was kind of meeting up with friends and we, there were all these, like, because I was, you know, not 21 when I started drinking. In fact, I've never had a legal drink, but I do remember the, the period of my life where alcohol was working really well. And I started to all of a sudden, you know, make friends 
And I started going to these, you know, these clubs, these raves in downtown Baltimore, you know, and they opened up at 10 o'clock at night and shut down at five o'clock in the morning. And I, you know, I just, I remember that excitement of going out and, and partying all night and really, really having a feeling like life was good and that the consequences that I was paying at that time in my life for the way that I was living were really paled in comparison to what I was getting from alcohol. And, um, and so it's, you know, kind of a stretch from what, from the, the kind of success that he was having, but all of us have that period of time where we fall in love with the magic of alcohol, you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, in my, you know, in my sobriety, I have had, I've had many times where things seem easy, you know, and a friend of mine, Chris, uh, who a couple of you probably know, Chris D, um, said in a meeting one time, you you know, it wasn't like some profane, it was kind of a throwaway line, like, but he said, if everything is going your way, you really don't know if you have a third step, like you might, but you don't really know. (laughs) You know, and I've had many times in my sobriety where, you know, I've got a car that I love and I, you know, may own a house and um, have a little dog and, you know, a relationship that seems to be going pretty good, maybe because it's a new relationship, you know, it's always fun in the first few months, you know, um, and sponsoring people, you know, all the the ego satisfactions, you know, are there. And... um and, you know, I can certainly take credit for when things yeah. are going really well in my life. That's it. And it's the easiest thing. The easiest thing for me to do is to take credit for the good things in my life and to dismiss AA and all that it's done for me. So um, I've certainly had that. What does it mean to you, Jay Wayne? I love the paragraph. I think that it, um, if I use one of our uh, meeting shrapnel terms that we had a while back, I think it was something like uh, look for the similarities, not the, or don't compare what the hell, whatever the hell that is. What What is that one? <laughs> Find the similarities, not the differences. There, there you go. That one. Yep. The, um, I love that he, he's living in like a fantasy world. He thinks he's going to catch up to the best golfer in the world at the time. Yep. I always lived in a fantasy world thinking that, that it wasn't exactly like that, but it was like one day my ship's just going to come in and things are going to be good. Or one day I'm going to actually be able to sing and I'm going to be a rock star or I'm going <laughs> to go on tour and have a bus. Right. And Shane can confirm. I cannot sing the, um, I try. So I, I certainly identify with that in the um, some of the other things. I think he he thinks that you know making a geographical cure or going from the city to the country is like going to fix him because the city is the problem. You know, I, I've done that. I've always thought, man, if I just get out of this town, things are going to be different. Mm. And I'd move five or six miles down the road, thinking that things were going to be different, and they. They never were. So I can, I can certainly identify with that and thinking that, I mean, I, I didn't have an impeccable coat of tan, nor did I play golf before I got sober. I, I got sober and then did that. 
the uh, <laughs> um, but you know, I, I did think that if I just had the right person or the right car or had enough money that that would change things. And the crazy life that I had like created through my drinking that that would just like, it would stop. And it never did. I mean, the, it just, yeah, it just, it made the delusion even more, yeah, even deeper, I guess would be a way to put it. So, so I, think I have it, a, I have a question for you all then. Uh, why can't an alcoholic do the right about face and drink like a gentleman? Why can't that happen? Either if it's moving, geographic, uh, new relationship, whatever the situation may be, why is that not possible? Well, because none of those outside things are the real problem with the alcoholic. My, I mean, um, Wayne, I'd be surprised if your answer was much different than mine, but, you know, I... I have a spiritual malady. <laughs> so none right. of those, none of those things uh, are really even touched by anything external, you know, the, the move, the right relationship, um, the love of family or friends, uh, new job. Uh, none of those things, they don't really matter, you know, um, <laughs> because my problem is that there's something deeply wrong with me that only alcohol can touch. And so when alcohol is taken away, I have to find a substitute that is sufficient. And that's a relationship with a higher power <laughs> without, without that, I may be able to tread water for a period of time, but eventually I'm going to take a drink. Yeah. I love in the book where it says that physicians who are familiar with alcoholism agree there's no such thing as making a normal drinker out of an alcoholic. So if you believe what the book Alcoholics Nama says and the actual doctor's opinion is that if you're an alcoholic, there's there's no way to there's no cure for that. Right? If you if you have the the physical allergy and the the mental obsession they describe that as a, you know, the bigger issue is the spiritual malady. And that the only way to fix that is through a relationship with a power greater than ourselves. Yep. Um, and, you know, the love of a mother or a family member or threats and, you know, the, the, the threat of losing a relationship or a job or even your life, it's just not enough to, to stop you from drinking the doctor in the doctor's opinion, he describes that as we're doomed. I think is the word he uses <laughs> unless we can experience an entire psychic change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, it's so funny. I mean, I, I was sober over 20 years when I read the line and really, really saw the general opinion seems to be that most alcoholics are doomed. Yep. You know, and then I looked up at the top of the page and the name of the chapter is the doctor's opinion. How many time have I, times have I shared about the doctor's opinion in meetings? Like, like I know what I'm talking about and just <laughs> glossed over the general opinions. Oh, this is the doctor's opinion. 
Yep. Mm-hmm. That's this his is opinion. It. Yeah. We are doomed. Yep. Plain and simple. Yep. And and later, the other doctor was that Doctor Jung, or Jung, J U N G, however you want to say that. I think he says if you're sober, if you if you recovered from a spiritual or through a spiritual experience, that you're an exception to the rule. And we like being exceptions, so I, I'll take that, man. Special. I, it makes us special. We're special. Right. But, you know, it also says in the book that that's the baffling feature of alcoholism, the utter inability to leave it alone no matter how great the necessity or the wish. It's the only feature once you're sober. Yeah. The phenomenon of craving is never going to be an issue in my life if I can, if I yeah. can find a way to avert this. <laughs> the, yeah. the, uh, the mental. The yep. mental obsession. So, Shank, it would seem that if you could manage well, you'd mm-hmm. be able to stay sober. How did managing well work? Uh, well, it didn't clearly for <laughs> me. Um, you know, I I know that we we really nail the book here, but you know, I mean, the book the book tells me that I have an inability to leave it alone. Like, even if I really, really want to, or I need to, you know, I am not able to leave alcohol alone. So, uh, managing well for me personally, I didn't, uh, know that I wasn't managing well, I guess, like, um, to Jason's point earlier, you know, I, well, I guess not to your point, the opposite of your point. I only drank, I was a pure guzzler. I didn't do drugs. Um, and I only drank for about four and a half years. And then I landed in AA. I wasn't as young as you, but all three of us were pretty young when we got sober. And, um, you know, I knew there was a problem. I did not know it was alcohol. And I guess if you had asked me if I was managing well, I had a job. You know, like I had somewhere to live. It was with family and I wasn't paying rent, but like you couldn't tell me (laughs) that that was a problem. Like homeless. Yeah. I mean, you know, like they weren't asking me to pay rent. They were just glad that I was sparkling conversation, having dinner at night, you know? Um, So, you know, I probably would have told you that I was managing well, but I do know that I was unable to um, stop drinking. I never tried to control my drinking. Uh, I controlled it via my work schedule, but if you had asked me to stop, I know without a shadow of a doubt, I would not have been able to. Yeah. It seems though that money and prestige would actually help you get sober. Well, you know, to (laughs) hear it, to hear it, um, at my home group sometimes, like, God just came down to people who had 23 pending felonies and God came down and removed all of that. And no one wants to focus on the fact that their parents, their grandparents, uh, someone in their family paid for a really great attorney. Yeah. And I'm really not here to hate on people that had family help. I just, I mean, if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you know that I really have beef about that. But it does seem I, to hinder people. I, I do. <clears throat> go ahead. Sorry. Go, no, I I do as well. I just this. You know, I'll I'll take it a, a, a just a, you know, out of uh, 
that context for just a second, but like, I, I have a real problem when people talk about all the things that God does for them. Cause it's like, not everybody gets on their feet financially. Yep. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, personally, <laughs> not, to, not to be self, <laughs> self pitiful, but this year I'm, I'm probably going to make less money than I've made since I was in my early twenties, just because the nature of my career and sales and, you we'll know, put I mean, we'll put Jason's Venmo in the show notes. Yeah, guys. So, you can send I, so there t- is a GoFundMe. No, <laughs> no, but but like it's you know, God doesn't. I just don't think He works that way. I don't think He's removing felonies and expunging records and getting somebody a job or, you know, I got in a near fatal motorcycle accident um, in sobriety in two thousand and eight, uh, and a good friend of mine came to my bedside. And a lot of people came to my bedside when I was in the hospital. I was just, A, just like showed up for me in just the most incredible way. Uh, And he said, you know, looks like somebody was looking out for you. I don't know about that. Because a lot of people, a lot of people die in motorcycle accidents. So, it's you know, does God not love those guys, you know? So anyway, look, there's a line I found in the big book. And I don't want to be long-winded or preachy, but there's a, a line in Bill's story where he says, my ideas about miracles are drastically revised. Here was a miracle at work in the human heart. It shouted great tidings, you know, something like that. And that that really hit me one day when I was sort of back and forth on, you know, what is it, what is what is God doing in my life? That is where he works miracles. Yeah. In my spirit. Not not with my paycheck, not, you know, not with me getting into a, an accident and happening not to die. So that's, that's just my take on it. Yeah. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I mean, I would, I would say that, that, well, to that point, one of the, one of the greatest things I've heard, one of our previous guests, Joyce made a comment that I have never heard of this before. We were having a similar conversation and I don't know if you remember, Shank, she said, AA is not a wish factory. Yes. And it just hit me that because when people start talking like that, it creates this false perception in people's minds that, man, I just come to AA and just do the right thing and nothing but good stuff's going to happen. And it's just not true. Well, it's very unfortunate, yeah. too, because I think people show up to Alcoholics Anonymous and hear, at least I heard you know, and have for years that show up to AA, God will remove all of your legal and financial trouble. And that was not my experience. And when I showed up to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was working the steps with a sponsor, having a relationship with God. As I understood God, I wasn't doing something wrong that I'm going to be a felon for the rest of my life. You know, like I wasn't doing something inherently wrong that I don't make 10 times what I was making financially at that time. And I think that it can cause people to show up and not get the things they desire. Their life gets worse instead of better when they show up to Alcoholics Anonymous for a period of time. And they're like, well, this sucks. God sucks. (laughs) And no, thank you. Uh, uh, Waiting around for good things to happen to me is what got me into drinking in the first place. Yes. I'm a, I'm a something for nothing guy, mm-hmm. you know? So if I just show up and, and start, you know, get sober and start asking God for, you know, a car or a great job or thinking it's just going to come, 
that's not, I mean, it goes without saying, obviously, if I'm not burning my life to the ground and I develop a relationship with a higher power, I am more able to, to do things that will help the outsides of my life get better. Sure. Yeah. And you, Oper- and you know, yeah, you- I don't have experience with uh, prestige hindering uh, my recovery, but I have sponsored women that, you know, their families or whomever continue to bail them out of situations out of complete love and genuine <clears throat> care. Um, and they've seen them show up to AA several times. They've seen it, quote, not work. You know, the, my sponsees just need a little more money, a little more time to get on my feet. I'm trying to stay sober and form this relationship with God. And unfortunately, I've seen a lot of women go out due to that. You know, I'm not going to say like they didn't have to hit a bottom or the bottom was brought up for them. I don't know about any of that. But I do know um, that it would seem to me through things I've seen over the past 10 and a half years that it does hinder um, them being able to get sober, not saying that it is the family, the parent, the whomever's fault. You know, of course it's not, but it does seem to me that it's not helpful. Well, yeah. So, I mean, the experience of Alcoholics Anonymous over the last, however long it's been, 80 something years would prove that in most cases, money and prestige will hinder you from getting sober. And even if you're sober, money and prestige, if it's not guided by service and humility, will probably get you drunk mm-hmm. if you're yeah. not, you know, it, what's the other well, meeting shrapnel? Well, what Jason uh, brought up earlier, and he did not say it quite in this way. So y'all don't hate on Jason, but you know, I do hear from people, AA gives you a life that takes you away from that's AA. It, yeah. yeah. And, um, shrapnel. you know, I would say that there are times where, uh, I am happy to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous at all times, but there are mm-hmm. times where I get frustrated, annoyed, upset, angry, resentful, um, typically on a service plane and Alcoholics Anonymous, where I just kind of like don't want to participate in certain things. Either I take it all the way and get kicked off of the committee or <laughs> I show up with a better attitude and um, I'm happy that I was there and able to show up and, and um, be a minority opinion. You know, but I have, I have yet to, to have a life that takes me away from AA. I feel like we're probably pretty eye to eye there. I mean, I, I, am I love being a part of a committee as long as I'm in charge of it, you know, (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to have some other idiot up there. Yeah. Seriously. God, can you believe? (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. No, but you're, I mean, you're right. It's, you know, my sponsor sponsor says something I love and it's true for me, you know, cause I am, you know, I'm married. I've got kids. I mean, look, it would be, I'd be self-will run right if I was going to seven meetings a week, you know, yep. but something he says that I love is I need five meetings a week. I can only get to three, but I hope I always feel like I need five meetings a week at least. And that's true for me. You know, I need to go to more meetings than I'm getting to, and I can't do it right now, but I still understand what, you know, what I need for my sobriety. Yep. All right. Shank, you want to move to big book shrapnel? Let's do it. Let's see what we've got. 
All ready, right, Jason? guys. Today for our big book shrapnel, if you're listening for the first time in our first couple of seasons, we had meeting shrapnel. Please go back and listen to that. Now we have moved on to big book shrapnel, which is a segment of sayings that are directly taken from the book Alcoholics Anonymous. So similar to um, at the top of the episode, the impeccable code of tan, we're going to have three sayings from the big book. So our first saying um, is a plain, ordinary, whoopee party. Plain, ordinary, whoopee party. Um, That's in the book? That is in the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. So I'm going to read here where it is from. Let's see. Okay. In working with others. I thought I had it here. Hang on. Let me find it. Jerry, do you have it on yours? Oh, you know what? Here. You have I it got pulled it. up? I just, I just opened my book here. So. Okay. Imagine that. I got a book. So it's in working with others. It says, so our rule is not to avoid a place where there is drinking if we have a legitimate reason for being there. That includes bars, nightclubs, dances, receptions, weddings, even plain ordinary whoopee parties. To a person who has had experience with an alcoholic, this may seem like tempting providence, but it isn't. So it, it just before that paragraph, it says, assuming that we're spiritually fit, <laughs> we can do that. So plain, ordinary whoopee party. What does that mean? Well, it was also known as just a whoopee party. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the term whoopee during, during that time, maybe still today, is synonymous with excitement, joy, celebration, fun, um, you could expect maybe a relaxed atmosphere where guests can socialize, play games, dance, enjoy world-class refreshments. Um, but the general vibe would be creating just like a positive party for everyone involved. For me, for some reason, I really believe that this was um, like a swinger situation. Yes. Why is that? Did someone well, tell me that? Well, so here's it. Whoopi's, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I always thought it. I always thought Whoopi was associated with sex. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's because I can remember being a kid and my parents would watch that newlywed, the newlywed show, and they used the term Whoopi on that show a lot with their questions, and it was a like a, a TV friendly term for sex. I see. So I grew up thinking that that's what the term meant. That's that's my take on it. So, but yeah, when I first saw it in the book, I, man, they're having an orgy. <laughs> I mean, I, if I get spiritually fit, I can go. Man, that's not a bad deal. Sounds like. Yeah. What do you think, Jason? I think it's one of the most abused lines in the book. Ah. You know, I think people get drunk. Not yeah. they, they don't get drunk because of the because of the the book. They get drunk because they take the line out of context. Um, 
you know, and not that line, but that whole the whole section that you uh, read. Yeah. Uh, Shank, we're talking about, you know, attending. You know, and, and and I think to some extent that's true. I mean, you know, I, I work in a professional atmosphere. There are happy hours. I'm expected to go. If I didn't go, no one's taking attendance, but it, it's good for, for me, for my profession to attend. Obviously, I've been to a number of weddings, AA weddings and, and non-AA weddings. Um, you know, and uh, among my work colleagues that um, most of them drink and sometimes we'll go out to, to dinner for someone's birthday and they may have a few drinks but I, I've been through the steps I've had a spiritual experience alcohol, alcohol is not calling me mm-hmm. in, in the way that it, it did and so if I'm in fit spiritual condition you know and I feel like I can take it or leave it. If that miracle has happened in my life, then I can attend as long as I'm not trying to steal some vicarious pleasure. What this always makes me think of, Jason, is I work in a client-based business and several of my clients know that I don't drink, whether or not they know I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous is depending on if they're trying to quit drinking. But... um you know, they know I don't drink. I do not expect every single one of my 200 clients to remember I don't drink. And at Christmas, I always have people that bring me wine or liquor. Mm -hmm. And I just don't think it's a big deal. And I have sponsored women who, or just talk to women in Alcoholics Anonymous who are like, I can't believe this person doesn't remember that I don't drink. What if I'm tempted? What if something happens? And it's something like very serious to them. Um, And, you know, to me, it's always like, well, yeah, I just give it to someone else, Mm -hmm. you know, like I go in my building and say, hey, would you love this really lovely whatever wine? You know, I re-gift it. Mm -hmm. Like, who cares? I'm not at that point where I'm just like, oh, I'm so tempted if this is in my possession, I might just accidentally guzzle it. Yeah. But where I think it's dangerous is people, you know, they show up to AA for a couple of weeks and they may go to a book study and they hear that. And the next thing you know, they're going to bars and clubs, you know, either to meet, you know, men or women or whatever, or to, to because that's what they'd always done. Yeah. And they think, well, AA says I can do anything and go anywhere. So I'm going to do that. And I just think it, you're playing with fire if if you haven't if you haven't been through the steps but let me put it this by the time you can go to a slippery place like that i'll share my experience by the time i could go to a slippery place like that i didn't want to go anymore it's no longer longer interesting to me Mm -hmm. at all you know and so now i go when when it makes sense to go but i'm not i'm not getting anything out of it so I'm also super obnoxious about <laughs> sorry real quick i'm super obnoxious about letting people know i don't drink like and that's just it's not a requirement that's just this is just my thing but like people are like yeah we went out we went to a vineyard you know wine tasting's a big thing out here where i live oh we went wine tasting in you know napa or whatever i'm like oh that's cool i don't drink they're like nobody asked you know, but yeah. like i just everybody I knows like that. there's no yeah. secret and i don't care if i look like the the weird guy at work yeah 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 well, um, listen, are we going to keep or translate this? Do you all like 
play an ordinary whoopee party? Would you like to hear a translation or let's just keep it and move on? I'm in for keeping it. What do you think, Jason? I'm not for changing anything in the book. Okay, so. we're going to keep plain, ordinary, <laughs> wolfy parties. And we're going to move right. on. What's the next one, Big Book Shrapnel number two. We have Triumphant Arch. Wow! So this is from page 62 in the big book. And it says, this is the how and why of it. First of all, we had to quit playing God. It didn't work. Next, we decided that hereafter in this drama of life, God was going to be our director. He is the principal. We are his agents. He is the father and we are his children. Most good ideas are simple. And this concept was the keystone of the new and triumphant arch through which we passed to freedom. So we have the new and triumphant arch. What do y'all think about that? I love, I don't know why this even showed up under Big Book Strap. I love this part. Mm -hmm. if, I mean, if you take the time to understand what it's saying, it's perfect. Yes. It's, if I understand my relationship with a higher power to be that he is the principal and I am his agent and father, and if I, if I, if I can fit myself into that relationship, then that is the keystone under which I walk to freedom. What could be better? <laughs> they don't mess that up. What do you think, Bebot? Oh, I love the paragraph. I think that it's the, the more we can practice that, the, the freer we are and the freer people are around us from our nonsense. Um, the term triumphant arch, I always thought McDonald's was the triumphant arch. <laughs> the, but then I realized that's the golden arches, I guess, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, I don't know what that means, triumphant arch, other than... Okay, what? well, a triumphant arch, uh, from what I could find, uh, it's a monumental structure. So this is like a big deal. Um, usually to commemorate some kind of significant event um, or to honor someone, like honor an individual, um, sometimes a group. So, you know, to your point about McDonald's, arches have been uh, common and um, a common architectural element in many cultures. Okay, right. so I'm not sure what culture McDonald's would be, but... Um, there you go. The only things that I could really come up with as a translation to kind of better understand what this was talking about would be like a victory arch. Victory arch. Okay. An another thing that I think is important to understand. I might sound like I have a know it all here, but I don't care. Um, go for uh, it. <laughs> understanding. This concept is the keystone. So the keystone, if you think of an arch, if you've ever been to like, you know, a castle or some like an old church or something, they have these arches, they have these bricks that are kind of stacked on either side and they come together at the top. And that point in the top where it's sort of, it's the top, right? So it, it kind of sets both arches. 
that's that's what the keystone is. Yeah, where without they meet. The, with that's right. Without mm -hmm. the keystone, you can't have the structure. The arch falls apart. It falls apart. No foundation. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So triumphant arch. If we're going to stay sober, I guess it's pretty important. I and think keystone, it's pretty important. The keystone of the triumphant arch is vitally important, which <laughs> yes. is basically giving your life to God, right? Sounds like. Yeah. Okay. I'm in favor of keeping this one. What about you two? I think we should keep it. Keep it. All Shake. right. We're going to keep it. All right. I do love in that passage, um, though, that it talks about, you know, we're going to freedom, which we're all about yeah. freedom on this podcast. That's right. And having okay. a new director. That's right. And the last big book shrapnel is steerage to captain's table. And this is from page 17. Um, there is a solution. Okay, so this one's a tad bit longer. Um, we are average Americans. All sections of this country, many of its occupations are represented, as well as many political, economic, social, and religious backgrounds. We are people who normally would not mix. But there exists among us a fellowship, a friendliness, and an understanding which is indescribably wonderful. We are like the passengers of a great liner the moment after rescue from shipwreck, shipwreck when camaraderie joyousness and democracy pervade the vessel from steerage to captain's table hmm. so that is just like a complete mouthful but what i can tell you all about steerage to captain's table is that i have confirmed that um jay wayne did not know what it meant until a week ago <laughs> so well, I feel, I feel pretty good about just finding you, that information out. You, you do, huh? I just had a misconception of what it meant. Now keep in mind, my conception, however inadequate, has worked for some people. That's right. Okay, so the steerage. But think about how much better their lives had been, could have been, if you had really yes. known. Wow. <laughs> Unbelievable. They could be even more free. So, for those of you who do not know, like Jay Wayne, who did not know, I also did not know, but it's funnier to me that he didn't know. Steerage, um, that was the cheapest, just lowest class accommodations of the ship. And the captain's table um, was considered a privilege sign of high status. So, you're going from steerage to captain's table would be from the lowest the lowest um class of people to the highest so the the in the paragraph i guess the idea of democracy and joyousness and rescue or the unity that was felt with the with the the folks that were in the shipwreck, it was it pervaded through the entire ship from rich to poor or the bottom That's to right. the top. Well, and it trail, tells us trailer to mansion. Yeah, it tells us, you know, it doesn't matter. Like 
every political, economic, social, and religious backgrounds were represented. So it's not just poor and rich people. It's also, you know, different religions. Um, it's just, we are normally people who normally would not mix. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you, you really get that at AA, you know, and that's, it's intuitive. I mean, I knew from the minute I showed up that, you know, that I was welcome it did, and it had nothing to do with what I could bring to the table or who I was or what I had accomplished. I mean, in many ways in AA, it's, it's kind of the opposite. I mean, the, the worse off you are, the more we tend to like you, you know, for the, for the most part. That's right. For sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, you know, a good friend of mine is, uh, um, you know, he's got like multiple degrees and engineering and physics and you know one of the smartest people out there and you know founded a technology company for many years and uh you know his sponsor is a plumber retired plumber yep is that someone we've had on the podcast maybe okay i don't know uh i think i just remember but that's only that in AA. yeah i just remember well, you can hear it i mean before. yeah or, or you know it, it's fairly common it has no, you know who we are out there has nothing to do with what we can accomplish in here. So since we have not really had a train, would you like a translation of steerage to captain's table? Yeah, would, let's, yeah let's hear let's, I- let's hear a translation. What do you got? Okay, so um, rags to riches. Rags to okay. riches, all right, I um, like it. Or zero to hero. Zero okay. to hero, that works. If we were going to translate the entire sentence, here's kind of what I came up with. After being saved from a sinking ship, everyone on the big boat feels like close friends, super happy and equal, no matter if they're in the cheap seats or dining with the captain. (laughs) Listen, it's really unnecessary, okay? But yeah, there you go. Yeah. Steerage to captain's table. Do you think a young person is going to know what that means or does it matter? Well, I think it's our responsibility as people who are going to be sponsoring new people to explain it to them or to yeah. give them bad information and they can still stay sober for however many years because they have the desire to stop drinking and they have willingness to do whatever is asked of right. them. Hey, if you're out there and I gave you bad information, I'm making an amends, a global amends <laughs> right now. <laughs> to everybody so consider that done i think we keep sturge captain's table jason me what do you think me too yeah keep it. shank we're keeping it Surprise! all right so three for three but let me ask a question shank do you do you happen to have a translation for the title impeccable code of tan so if we were going to okay. you- Well, I I I'm not sure if I stated this earlier, but I do. Yes. And um the translation that I could come up with was that rich people glow. <laughs> <laughs> that rich people glow? Yeah. Mhm. <laughs> Wait a minute now. We I like that. Mhm. That's uh let me see what that sounds like in the sentence. Where's that at here? 
Oh, I acquired that rich people glow. One, one sees, sees upon, upon the well to do. That's not bad. I think we'll keep impeccable coat of tan. I was just I curious. think we should. We should just bring yeah. it back and start using it more often. We should. That's the thing, Jason. Some of these terms, we should start using them. You know, I have a friend who um, often comments on my impeccable coat of tan that one sees upon the well to do. So there you go. Okay. <laughs> there you are bring- several people that comment on <laughs> Jerry's impeccable coat of tan. <laughs> Yeah, they do. Jason, we appreciate you coming on. It's been, oh, a, so uh, much, guys. been a great time. Appreciate your experience. It's been a pleasure. Yep. And uh, remember, the 12 steps may not give you an impeccable coat of tan, <laughs> but if you try to practice them as a way of life, they can uh, remove the obsession to drink and help you to be free. That's Freedom. Thanks for listening. If you have a comment, suggestion, or just need help, you can email Shank and Wayne at freedom at alcoholicsalive.com. Remember, we're recovered members of Alcoholics Anonymous, but we do not speak for Alcoholics Anonymous, nor do we get paid. Join us next week for another great episode. Mm-hmm.